The problem with the VC pipeline is that it's so optimized and it has to be to make the numbers work for the casino, the house. For the house to win, the numbers have to be like that, that they have to be gearing these companies for the billion dollar exits. That's what pays for the whole party. In trying to do that, they're also minimizing the chances that something comes out and it's just a nice $5 million a year business. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Today's show is the first in a two-part series where we talk to someone who's had a huge influence on Ian and myself. In fact, I got to say, I was genuinely nervous before this phone call. I won't speak for you, but I'll give you a chance to speak. Were you nervous? I was nervous, yeah. (laughs) This interview was a big deal for us. It was a bit of a reach for what we generally do on the TMBA podcast. So I'm happy that Jane was actually the person that reached out to him, and he was able to come on the show. And I'll tell you what, the nerves went away in the first five or ten minutes. We talked about race car driving. We talked about partnerships. We talked about VCs versus bootstrapping business. I mean, the conversation went for over an hour. We're going to have to split it up into multiple parts because we just touched so many things. So today's guest, if you haven't guessed already, is the co-founder of Basecamp and the creator of Ruby on Rails, David Hanemeyer Hansen. On the internet, he's known as DHH. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a subject some see as a blueprint for getting rich and others see as a two-letter swear word. I'll give you a guess, Ian. VC? That's right, venture capital. DHH has just been an incredibly vocal supporter of building quality products shipping them to your customers directly and charging people for them rather than getting caught up in this whole venture capital world. And really, in some ways, he's been sort of like the godfather of the bootstrapped internet business movement. Yeah, at least he is one of the strongest voices that tend to get overshadowed by these VCs who have an incredible upside for sharing their ideas about VC, obviously deal flow, when someone like DHH doesn't have much to benefit. Later in the show, we're going to be talking to Zapier co-founder Wade Foster about his thoughts and experiences of taking funding. But first, DHH, as well as founding Basecamp with his business partner, Jason Freed. He's co-authored a bunch of books, including Getting Real, which I look as like sort of a handbook to running what we used to call lifestyle businesses all the time, and Rework which has talked about the remote generation and building businesses where people you know, live all around the world, the type of thing we talk about on this show. A few months ago, he wrote a really powerful piece called Reconsider. And that was really what inspired us to reach out to David. The message there was so strong. And I just want to read a quote from that piece before we get into the interview. It's hard to carry on a conversation with most startup people these days without getting inundated with odes to network effects and the valiance of deferring, quote, monetization until you find something everyone in the whole damn world wants to fix their eyeballs on. In this atmosphere, the term startup has been narrowed to describe the pursuit of total business domination. It's turned into an obsession with unicorns and the properties of their success. A whole generation of people working with and for the internet enthralled by the prospect of being transformed into a mythical creature. 
But who can blame them? This set of fairy tale ideals are being reinforced at every turn. You know, you can just feel the emotion in the piece, Ian. It's just obvious that this whole world, you know, really frustrates him and even annoys him. So that's the first thing we asked him about. We were curious. It certainly annoys me. And there's lots of facets and angles on it that annoy me. It's the compounding effect of all those annoyances that leads to these occasional outbursts. like reconsider and and other rants, uh, let's just call them that, on the topic over the years. I'd say one of the major ones is wasted life. I look at the number of people who have to go into the machinery, the meat grinder of the VC founding to funding pipeline to make the numbers work and just go like, that's tragic. It's tragic for the individuals involved, in my opinion. I know that's kind of paternalistic, perhaps. Like, who am I to say whether it's tragic for the individuals involved? But I've talked to enough people who've been through it to feel that that level of tragedy is not just based on like, oh, shit, like I would hate to have gone through that not knowing what I know now about how the system works. I would have gone like, hey, what the fuck? Why didn't anyone tell me that the odds were so shitty? Why didn't anyone tell me that even if the odds, if I beat the odds and I made it on the other side, it was still likely to be a crappy experience? Why was this positioned as, oh, this is the way you start up. This is the formula. This is how you do it. Of course you do it like this. When there are alternatives and not just fringe, bizarro alternatives, incredibly real, satisfying alternatives that don't have these pitfalls, but have many of the upsides. And especially in the upside side of things, as we talk about with the financial part of it, the difference between going through the VC meat grinder and having nothing to show for it on the other end, and then going through a bootstrap startup where you end up with, let's just say, I mean, not that that's a majority chance, but better odds of becoming just a a single digit millionaire, right? The difference between those things are enormous. So in other words, it's like exponentially more difficult to get 300 million than it is to get 3 million. Definitely. And the problem with the VC pipeline is that it's so optimized and it has to be to make the numbers work for the casino, the house, that they have to be gearing these companies for the billion-dollar exits. That's what pays for the whole party. In trying to do that, they're also minimizing the chances that something comes out and it's just a nice $5 million a year business. Like to the VC pipeline, that's an utter failure that should be shut down and the meat in that grinder should be recycled and they should try again again, again, to get that billion dollar exit where we make the numbers work. For years, I've been listening to, you know, reading everything, Paul Graham, everything, J. Cal, Chris Saka, you name it, like I'll read it, you know, and I'm so surprised that they don't even seem to acknowledge this stuff. Do you think that their goals are just different? Maybe they're more focused on power than money or? All people are and all people are starting to optimize their lot and their lot is just very different from the people who go through the systems that they've set up. Like for them to win, Lots of people who go through the system will lose. That doesn't mean they're not winning. They'll continue to win. All these programs, accelerators, and VCs, they can have the vast, vast, vast majority of everyone who goes through that program fail and lose, and then they still win, right? That's the the incentives are not aligned. They will say, well, it's not my problem. I gave you a shot at being a billionaire. You're the sucker who took that shot. 
which is the same sense of people stamping lottery coupons. Like, hey, these are the odds. I give you a shot at being a billionaire. I mean, shitty odds, very unlikely to happen. But the system works if enough of you fools pick up a ticket and buy the ticket. That aspect alone, I think that their livelihood, that their business and their justification for being relies on these odds. And that's just not in the best interest of a lot of people. It is in the best interest for you. You should totally go through that program if the biggest thing you want out of your life is a shot at becoming a billionaire, is a shot at becoming the next Facebook or something like that that presumably needs to go for years and years and years blowing through hundreds of millions to get to this level. Like if that's the biggest goal you have in life, absolutely. Pack your bags and move to San Francisco right now. <laughs> My posit is that that is not most people's biggest dream. That they have far more modest dreams they just mistake can only be fulfilled through the same path. Right. And so one of the things that you advocate and we advocate is, is bootstrap businesses because these types of businesses can fulfill most of your dreams, right? Like you own the supercar that you dreamed of, you go racing, you have this wonderful life, great business, right? But a lot of times, and I think you've said this before, is the people that are living these lives and running these bootstrap businesses aren't incentivized to talk about their businesses, Yes, I think that's part of the problem. The VC cabal and like the whole industry around that need to constantly publicize how awesome and wonderful they are and the exceptions that they occasionally land on, the Facebooks of the world. They need to constantly beat the drum. See, 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 someone beat the odds, someone made it, that could be you too. Versus the bootstrapped successes, unless they have a pathological need to just share and shout, which is with mixed blessings, my curse, then what is in it for them? What is in it for someone who's just quietly making bank to tell other people about that? Why would they want to attract that attention? Like if you're just quietly killing it, one of the wonderful things about being a private company is that you don't have to disclose your financial status. I can think of very few people, generally speaking, who are better off by advertising to the world that, oh, I made a lot of money. What? Why would you do that? Like, there's just not the natural incentives, right? Like, you're not going to be better off for it. Like, some people can't help themselves, or perhaps some people are vain, or whatever combination of things that compels some in that group to still shout from the rooftops. I contend that they're in the minority, and that the vast majority of them just quietly laugh all the way to the bank. But you're in an interesting position because you've talked about your product openly. Everybody knows what you're working on. And so, you know, it's very defensible at this point. And so you have a great following. And so you're in an interesting position because you do have that experience. And then now you do also have that power. And I think that's one of the reasons why your voice is so important in this space in communicating with people that you may be throwing away your life. Here's an alternative script. And like you said, it's not for weirdos. It's the one I've been living. And it's quite nice. The main thing you should always do when you listen to people, especially when it comes to life advice, that's not exactly scientific. It's not like you can take my theory and put it into a controlled experiment and then come up with a conclusion in the end to say, this is true. It's not like the law of thermodynamics that's going to outcome from this, right? So when that is not the case, you have to do source criticism. And the source criticism should go on what's in it for them. For me, people should absolutely ask that question. What is in it for me to speak my mind on this? And will I gain something in particular if a person chooses to listen to my advice and forgo the VC route and try to bootstrap themselves? Like, what would I win from that? I have a hard time coming up with it. What, they buy rework? 
So they spent, <laughs> what, 10 bucks on a book that I see two bucks of, which is like pittance and piss all in the grand scheme of things. Like, is that what I'm going to get out of it? You could say attention. There's some spillover effect, perhaps. But I mean, how much of that really flows back to the product? Come on. And at least for me, there's not a lot of ulterior motives to even draw up, right? So I think that's one of the advantages that I have. That doesn't mean I'm right. It doesn't mean you should listen to me. It just means that when you look at the motivations that I might have for saying something, perhaps just maybe they could be, as I state them to be, that, hey, I would just like more people to realize that less life could be wasted, I got to say, like, you've probably inspired like tens of thousands of people around the world to like dig up copies of Maverick. Like, I see them like go to these 20 year old books, like laying around at conferences and stuff. I don't know if they've started printing it again or people are sharing it now via PDF. And you also cite Kathy Sierra as someone that you guys read like really early on. And when Ian and I started, it was like you and Jason were the only people that really felt like they were writing. There was like, a couple blogs. And I'm curious is like, did you guys feel alone at that moment? Or were you like, hell yeah, we got this? Like, what was the landscape like back in 2003, when you started sharing your business online, which virtually nobody was doing? It's funny, because it didn't feel alone to me, perhaps it's because I never really pay that much attention anyway, that it doesn't feel indifferent to me now than it did then. I've been inspired by a bunch of things that I read. So I thought that by the time I arrived at some experiences and some distilled advice that I was willing to follow myself, okay, I should share that out. I should be as generous with the things that I had learned as the authors who went before me had been with theirs. And as you say, Maverick was one of those books that was influential and Ricardo Semler and what he did with his company and these just crazy wild ideas that actually it kind of like it, it moved the goalposts. Like Ricardo Semler is doing some crazy ass wild shit. Like what we're actually advocating here is completely benign and boring in comparison. <laughs> Even though if you just looked at it on its own, it might be a little more counter-revolutionary or whatever. But compared to Ricardo Semler, it was child's play, right? So he helped move the goalposts early to make it easier for us to, to share just our, again, in comparison, perhaps trivial experiences and lessons. Yeah, so just a quick word about Ricardo Semler for those who haven't read Maverick. The book outlines his journey as the CEO of this business called Semco Partners, which did all kinds of things. You know, it was a very diverse place. Under his ownership, the revenue went from $4 million in 1982 to $212 million in 2003. And you see this in the book. What's interesting is that like CEOs from all around the planet were coming to see how Ricardo was running this Brazilian company, you know, not exactly in a place where you'd think innovative business would be happening, but he was doing things like creating radical democracies in manufacturing environments. So I think that's just a little bit of background on what DHH is saying here is that to see somebody who had done so much in a country like Brazil with old school business, like really bringing fresh thinking to it, I think just opens up, you know, your mind. If this guy can do it and I've got the internet, you know, I can rethink how I'm going to approach my business. Yeah. Reading this book for me, Dan, we've talked about it before on this podcast, but just kind of mind blowing the things that he did in terms of his management structure in this old school, like you said, manufacturing business. I think we're very inspired by this book, obviously in the beginning. And it's part of the reason why we felt compelled to do radical things with our manufacturing company as well is because we saw this guy being very successful. Absolutely. So now let's zoom back to the story of Basecamp, which is DHH's company. Part of the story of Basecamp 
includes a decision by David and Jason to take a cash infusion. And it came from none other than Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com in 2006. And David's also written about this on the internet, about how it felt to become a millionaire. Like that day, they kind of cashed in and they made a life-changing amount of money. And he said that, yeah, it felt really cool to buy a yellow Lamborghini, which he did do. But he also talks about how it felt just as cool to realize that the things that satisfied and fulfilled him the most, like riding, driving race cars occasionally, and working on his business, hadn't changed. It was, he says, as if he had, and I'll quote it, pulled back the curtain on that millionaire's dream and found, to my surprise, that most of the things on the other side were things I had already had. Equal parts, shock and awe, but ultimately deeply reassuring. Well, let's just call it what it was with the cast infusion, because none of the money went into the business. He just straight up bought some of Jason and I's equity. So we cashed out in an aspect. I'm an already peach. Zero money ever went into the business. All the money went to Jason and I's bank accounts. Sweet. So a really great week. You know, you bought the Lambo, you know, and I really appreciated the kind of point that you were making in that article, which is something that I've heard from people and I also did not believe it. But I'm curious because you talked about loving your work and getting back to it and focusing on that. There's a lot of pressure when you have money to sort of invest it right or to manage it correctly or to do certain things with it to all of a sudden become an investor or to help other entrepreneurs. So what is your attitude about wealth management and how much energy do you spend on it? I am the most boring investor in the whole world. I basically have all my stuff managed by myself, and the vast majority of it sits in a variety of ETFs. I do not try to beat the market. I do not try to outsmart the market. I do not try to pick upcoming winners. I don't mix, generally speaking, money and sort of relationships in that sense that I'm going to be a personal angel investor in something. It just doesn't it doesn't interest me, to be quite frank. I'm more interested in doing things for sort of the betterment of the businesses that I have. Like there's enough on that plate. And whatever else I need to fill on that plate, I fill it with other stuff. I fill it with family. I fill it with hobbies. I fill it with all sorts of other things. And then I retain the humility of knowing that just because I happen to hit a slam dunk, a home run with base camp, does not mean that I have some magic voodoo touch that's going to turn everything else into gold. Which basically means that the fastest way for me to lose all my money is to think that I'm so smart that I'm going to beat everyone else. So I don't think that at all. Simply parking money in index funds for the long term and not touching them. I found through both research and personal experience, no safer way to slowly grow the assets that I've accumulated. Then energy I can put into other things, things I care more about than trying to explosively grow this nest egg that I've built up. David, do you consider Basecamp as one of those nest eggs? No. It's funny because in all the wealth planning and so on that I do, I always put a big fat zero next to the stick that I have at Basecamp. I think Basecamp is something that could go away tomorrow. I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this kind of paranoia, right? Well, the funny thing is for me, it's not a sense of paranoia because some people use that, oh shit, it could go away tomorrow to have a lot of anxiety and stressing out about it and so on. I have already resigned myself to the fact that if Basecamp went away tomorrow, I'm okay with that. Completely okay with that. As in, I had a long, great run with this company. I got to work with some incredible people. I got to do some really interesting, fun technology. We had a lot of awesome interactions with plenty of customers. Very, very few things last forever or even 15 years. So if this Basecamp thing 
comes to an end tomorrow. I'm at peace with that. I have accepted that that could very well happen, which is why sort of the financial planning I've made factors that in completely. As in, if Basecamp somehow gets to zero tomorrow, I'll still be okay. You know, one of the reasons Dan and I sold our businesses is because we were just bored of it. And it was actually a great cash generating machine, but that's simply all that it was. And it wasn't providing us with much any other fulfillment outside of that. It sounds like you are still excited about the product, but it also seems like you know, you've been running it for a long time. Why shouldn't there be an opportunity for some kind of exit? Are you keeping it around because it's a good cash generator or are you keeping it around for other reasons? Are you thinking about selling no, it? I'm keeping it around and we will keep it around forever because it gives this is the platform to try all the things that we want to do to keep ourselves entertained. And I think very many entrepreneurs that I've talked to who've sold their business ended up regretting it because you think when you hit a good thing, oh, well, I was so great at making this thing work. I can do that again. No problem. I'll just start the next thing. And then they find out, oh, actually, that was harder than I thought. And for all sorts of reasons. And it's like, as in, I don't want to be 22 again. <laughs> I don't. Like, that was a great time. I'm not going to start the business again. I'm just, I'm not. Like, I don't want to go through all that again. Like, I had that phase of my life. It was a great phase of my life. Now I'm in a different phase of my life. Let me enjoy that. So perhaps some people, they look back, like, on their glory years and, like, oh, yeah, man, high school was just the greatest. Remember, like, <laughs> all the school things. And, like, they constantly reminisce about that. I try to set things up in such a way that I don't have to do that. If there are things about Basecamp that annoys me, let's change them. If we want to pursue something else, if we want to play with other technology or business ideas or whatever, let's do it within the thing we've set up. The only reason I could think of to flush the whole thing is if you couldn't get on with the people. And these are the best people I've ever worked with. I have a very hard time seeing I'm going to sample a better crew of people to work with somewhere new. And to be honest, I don't want to. <laughs> You mentioned the platform, and I think that's a really compelling argument. You know, it's not so much maybe about the cash flow, but about the platform. Talk to a lot of people too that have sold their businesses or that are thinking about selling their businesses. And the number one question that I hear is like, what about my team? Right? Because it's very powerful to have this group of people around you that can help to execute on the idea. So it makes a lot of sense to me that you would want to keep that around and, like you said, not have to start from scratch again. And you just, I mean, you like them. I'll be honest, I don't like that many people to the extent that I want to spend lots of time with them. I found a group of people that I do like spending a lot of time with. That's more special than I think most people give it credit for, at least if you're an uh, introvert as I am. I just like, that would take years to build that shit up again. That's just not on the cards for me. First off, let me say it was like pretty thrilling to be able to talk to DHH. And you probably noticed he's like, from a podcasting perspective, he's an interviewer's dream. Because you can just say anything to the guy and he's going to be fascinating. You'd be like, give me 15 minutes on potatoes. He's just such a perceptive, intelligent, articulate guy. Very fun. I think that's part of what made the nerves go away is like, oh, this guy, he's just so interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like That and he likes to talk about race cars, which we'll have in an upcoming episode. I mean, can't go wrong. <laughs> so Ian, what did you think when David said, I'm never going to sell this business? I don't want to go back to my 20s and like hustle up all of this again. What do you think of that perspective? I just think it's such a unique idea. My initial reaction and kind of what I'm still thinking is I'm skeptical about that idea. I think it's very hard to be passionate about something for such a long period of time, unless you're passionate about the cash flow that it spits out. And then in that case, I can really understand it. But for it to pass the onstage test for me, 20, 30, 40 years, personally, I can't do that. So not to say I'm skeptical that other people can't do that, but I'm interested to know what their main motivators are for keeping that alive. And if it is that you don't want to go back and start from ground zero, then I can appreciate that. 
One thing that's interesting is that it's very similar to the story that Ricardo Semler tells in Maverick. If you recall, like Semco got into all different kinds of industries and he allowed his employees to sort of seek their own passion within that platform. And it allowed him to stay interested in that business for decades. And it looks like that's what David and Jason are doing. So I do think there's a lot of food for thought here. I'll tell you what, and I think a lot of people, especially new entrepreneurs and people that are working on the internet, you know, shiny object syndrome, it's really easy to get caught onto something new and start working on it. But I think in the long haul, if you do what DHH and Jason are doing, it's the money play. It's the big money play in terms of creating real wealth for yourself if you can stick to it for a long time. This idea, and I think that Jason and David have always been like really keen on this since day one is that if you're building a business like this, that's not going to be a giant startup. You have to find some way to perennially engage your passion. And it's interesting because that actually can end up being an extraordinarily profitable strategy because if you got someone like David's best energy on the same project, more or less, for 10 years straight, that's a very profitable strategy. This idea of like thinking about something that you can stick with for 10 years I think this is just a fascinating idea. Maybe people don't think about it enough. It seems like a better strategy to me, out of the box at least, than being an opportunist and saying, you know, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to go work really hard at it for a year or two and try to make a bunch of money that way. This idea that passion can actually be profitable is super fascinating to me. So you know, I thought this would be an interesting time to revisit the conversation that we had with Wade Foster, the co-founder of Zapier a few weeks ago, because you actually asked him some really interesting questions about their decisions to take funding. They joined YC, they took a little seed funding there, and they raised a round of a little over a million dollars. So that company now has 36 location independent employees. And so I think it's a cool contrast. Like what does that decision look like? So we started off by asking Wade how that million bucks of investment, which is a lot of money, has changed his life. It's not changed too much. I still work a lot. I'm not rich. 36 people costs a lot of money, right? So it's not like I can afford to just travel all the time or do things like that. I do have a little bit more money than I used to, but not much. I think probably the biggest thing is that, like, I know that there's a lot of utility in Zapier. There's a lot of assets tied up into it. So if there was ever something terrible that happened, like, I could get access to money, I guess, if I needed to. So that's probably a little bit different. Otherwise, like, I still live in a tiny one-bedroom apartment. I have a dog now, which is different. <laughs> you know, one thing that I really have tried to do is, as Zapier's gotten bigger, is take care of myself better. Those first couple of years, like you put on the founder 15, right? You know, last year I started playing racquetball a bunch, tried to eat a little bit better, you know, things like that. So things change a little bit and, you know, you got teammates to help carry the burden a little bit more, which is really nice. So you can try and take care of yourself a little bit better for the long haul. So that's definitely one thing that has changed for the positive. On this program, generally the entrepreneurs that we talk to are people that are boot shopping companies. And it seems like Zapier could have gone either way, right? Like you had a public launch and then you kind of ran into the situation where you were accepted to Y Combinator. But how beneficial is it right now in terms of the connections and the money? Do you think that you could have done this bootstrapping? Do you think that this might go sideways in some way because you might not have as much control over the company in the long run? Zapier still has like a very strong bootstrappers ethos. We've been profitable the last two years. You know, we haven't had to raise more money. We still own the Brian, Mike and I are still the, the board. So we still call our own shots. The money, the million dollars we raised back in 2012 was just really nice at the time to help pay the rent and buy food and to like hire one person to help out. 
but we still didn't spend it. We approached it like we didn't have it, right? It's like, look, this money is set aside for like a rainy day a little bit. And we tapped into it a bit for hiring in cases, but mostly we tried not to use it, right? It was literally just make sure that, you know, if something went wrong, we're able to kind of take care of things. I have a wife, Brian had a wife, Mike's got a wife, like, you know, they expect a certain standard of living that's not, you know, sleeping on the floor, which is what they we don't were like doing. Futons. <laughs> yeah, we slept on the floor during YC. Brian, Mike, and I had an apartment where it's the three of us sleeping on a floor. You know, for some odd reason, they didn't think that was as much fun as we did, I guess. <laughs> With that, you know, quality of living that you're trying to achieve, I mean, sometimes when you're running these companies, when you're not funded, you know, things can go bad and you're going to have to cut things out and maybe go back to living on a futon. Whereas if you have a f- little bit of funding, there might still be a wallet open for you to be able to continue the company. If I'm one of your investors, investors, I'm probably pushing you to raise more money, right? Because I'd like to see a better return on my investment. Is that the case with Zapier? I think so, right? Like investors want moonshots, right? They want Ubers and billion dollar exits and things like that. I think some investors are are maybe a little more savvy than that too. Like raising more money doesn't necessarily always mean faster growth, right? Like if you have like an engine of growth that requires, you know, ad buys or sales teams where you put more money in and it almost guarantees more money out, then yeah, sure. But some businesses aren't quite like that. They're maybe a little more capital efficient and they don't need as much money. I think there's a lot of savvy VCs out there too that are like, look, you know, what's best for the founders is probably what's going to be best for the company in the long run. So let's kind of align ourselves together and see what happens. I think that's definitely the case with our investors. Have you found that your investors are able to provide you more than just with the funds? All of our investors have like run successful businesses before in the past or have been, you know, on the sidelines for really big successful companies too. So I think there's a lot of advice that comes with that. And more than advice, I think stories, right? Like there's a lot of stories that come with that. You know, here's what happened at this place at this time, this moment in history. So you can, you know, ask more questions and dive deeper, right? I'm sure that's one of the great things about running a podcast like this is you all get to ask entrepreneurs all day, every day, like about their own businesses. And then you can figure out like, how to apply that to your own business. It's also great because running a podcast is extraordinarily easy relative to actually <laughs> running or doing what you're doing, Wade. <laughs> what would inspire you guys to take a next round of funding versus continuing to go bootstrap? Like, where does the path, you know, separate in the woods? I guess maybe two things. One, if we had like a situation where it was like, no brainer. Like, you know, you put a dollar in, get $2 out. If that was like really clear, cut and dry. I think we might consider it. And then two, if it was like free or effectively free. Like somebody just wanted equity in your company. Well, not just that, right? Like, you know, we'll give you this much for like the tiniest of sliverest of pieces of equity. Then like, okay. You see right. some of these mega rounds and out there, right, that have happened in the last year where people are raising hundreds of millions of dollars and giving up, you know, 5% of the company. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd do that, right? <laughs> so maintaining control is really important though. I think so. We definitely value having control and being able to kind of set our own destiny. When you guys like sit around and dream about the future, like what does that look like nowadays? Like what are you thinking of as the next step? I like to not live in a one-bedroom apartment at some point in time. <laughs> Does that count? No, two bedrooms, very important. Upgrading to two bedrooms, that sounds really nice. Yeah, maybe a little more natural sunlight. I think the thing that gets us excited is that just having an impact, right? We've helped a lot of small businesses make their businesses a little easier, run them a little smoother. And so if we can do that more, do that times 10, times 100, 
that'd be exciting, right? And to build an organization that, you know, is long lasting, that can have an impact for tens of years, hundreds of years, like that would be fantastic. So I think a lot of that's what we're trying to do now is like set Zapier up to be around for the long haul and to have a big impact on, you know, small businesses and trying to make as many of them happier, I guess, as we can. Zapier makes you happier. I think that works. I could see a sticker with that. Yeah. That's good. Hey, we should start a marketing agency. We could just steal ideas from our guests, repackage them, send them out to the world. <laughs> just awesome to hear the honest thoughts from Wade, from David. We have a lot more from that DHH interview that we're going to be sharing with you in a forthcoming episode, which is going to be about the greatest, most productive, but also potentially fraught relationship you may have in your life. And no, Ian, we're not talking about with your cat. Oh. We're talking about <laughs> the one between you and your business partner. So we really dug into David's relationship with his business partner, and Ian and I will get a chance to share some of our thoughts. That'll be next week. I'm seeing some dirty laundry <laughs> getting aired out. Is that what's going to happen? And so we're going to have a cleaning session on next week's Tropical MBA podcast. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.